Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Adrian Van Vactor, an accompaniment with some lovely monsoon storm background noise. If you hear any rumbling, don't worry, we're not moving anything heavy. The uh, angels are bowling, as we used to say when I was little. If you want to send us your Bible questions, note that we have our email address open 24-7 for you, questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like clarification on spelling, you can join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab. That will be at the top of the screen in a purple bar, and you'll be sent to ccftucson.online.church. There, of course, you can comment while the broadcast is going on or listen to previous broadcasts and perhaps uh, circumvent the hazards of social media. Speaking of which, if you want to join us on Facebook, it's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is a reason for hope. The advantage there is that you'll be notified if you like or subscribe to us when we are going live in your respective time zone. However, the disadvantages, we are peppered with unjust copyright strikes that usually get left uh, two weeks later. And always for some reason whenever we discuss issues like abortion. So we'll uh, let uh, cooler heads prevail in time, but I'll still make the accusation I call shenanigans. You can still join us on those sites, but if we are not, feel free to join us on our website, which is where we encourage you to do so. And uh, noting the uh, atmospheric discharge of nitrogen, I believe that's the element, uh, certainly agrees with me. We'll hope that the power stays on long enough for us to stay alive. us in, yeah, keep us in prayer, but note, uh, we also want to start with a word of prayer, so um, make sure God speaks more than we do. Let's do that. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. Phil, Adrian, and I with your spirit, allow our words to not only be clear, but also to be true, to not only accurately represent your word, but to communicate with your voice. Thank you for these storms, and while we do ask for protection in some degree, we are also thankful living in this dry and thirsty land. Allow our hearts to receive your grace in the same way, in Jesus' name. Amen. That being said, uh, we received an email question regarding the Trinity as a follow-through for what we discussed on Monday. If uh, Basically, uh, the question comes from Jody and says, I have listened to your explanations about the Trinity, and they went to the website to help get mm. the citations in order, but it's all back to the same questions. How can there be three persons, yet one God? So the question is, if I don't understand the Trinity, is that going to impact or even disqualify my salvation? And what will God do if I love him, yet believe the wrong doctrine? Does that put me at risk for believing in a wrong Jesus, scary stuff. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're sober about this, but uh, we'll hopefully answer it in a way that's clear. She has at various times believed in accurate doctrine on the Trinity. I believe uh, believed inaccurate doctrine. As I learned more about God's Word, I was able to adjust my beliefs to align with God's Word, but I don't know how to settle the subject with God's Word, and it just makes my mind spin. That's what happens when you're dealing with an eternal being. So three phases I think we can deal to this question. First, is there a uh, doctrinal exam when you get to heaven? Is there a difference between not understanding but still acknowledging? And of course, uh, what's the fine line between believing in a fake Jesus 
Jesus and believing in Jesus, but uh, just basically being in the same state every husband and wife has with each other. I don't understand everything, but I love her anyway. So uh, let's start with that. Uh, what's that fine line? Obviously, there, and this is key for all questions put in proper context, Jody, a very, very fine line between actively opposing and personally just recognizing but not understanding something. I believe uh, you have a quote for us that uh, succincts this very well. Yeah, <clears throat> I like what another Christian apologist often said is that we may apprehend the Trinity means we understand what you're saying. Like, okay, uh, essentially God is one in substance. He is not multiple beings or separate entities. But when it comes to personhood, which is not a substantive category, but rather just uh, like a, I don't even know how you would term it, but... <clears throat> you know, three persons, but one in essence. And he, this apologist would often say that we can perhaps apprehend the Trinity, but we not necessarily can comprehend it. So the difference between apprehension and comprehension ought to be probably brought into perspective, just realizing that we are finite, limited beings trying to grasp concepts, words, ideas that take the biblical content, the data that God has revealed through the ages, through multiple different people with different levels of understanding, and then collate all that data in a profound way that no human being has ever had the ability to do so until the modern age. With technology, we can cross-reference, look up you know, language, words, and in ways that no one's ever been able to do. So we have over the centuries have brought this information together and created these these ways of describing God as best as we can, uh, an infinite being, an eternal being. So realize that I may apprehend what God says about himself, but I may not fully comprehend it, and that's okay. And there is a difference. So if I apprehend something, then obviously I'm going to be able to define it according to the biblical revelation. I'm going to be able to recognize it as from the Bible as to why I trust it. But to comprehend, I can't, uh, you know, demonstrate or recreate it in a lab. I can't demonstrate it as something within creation because that's impossible. Mm -hmm. The Creator's unique. So, Jody, understand that there is that line. If I'm in Coltville, that means the Trinity's a heresy, and you're all apostates for believing in this and not quoting phone calls that we received in the last week saying these exact words, all of this opposition to something that is undeniably biblical. But if, on the other hand, we jump over and say, yeah, uh, the Trinity is defined as three beings, one, um, uh, three persons, one being, that what he is and mm -hmm. who he is are categorically different, and that we recognize four fundamental facts. First, there is one and only one God. We note this from the Old and New Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4, John 17.3, mm -hmm. to name a few. The second fact is the ongoing reality. There are certain things only God can truthfully say about himself. Someone claims to be the creator of the heavens and the earth. They're either Genesis 1-1, God, or they're line. And we also note as well that the status of creator is attributed to a title, a person. This is the third fact of the Father in Isaiah 64 and verse 8, of the Son in John 1, 1 through 3 and verse 14, verifying that as Jesus, and Colossians 1, 17, and of course to the Spirit in Genesis 1 and verse 
3. But the point being made is that. We can go to Job 33 and verse 4, where he's known as the maintainer of life, and Jesus also noting that in him all things not only exist, but consist. We can go to Revelation chapter 4 and noting that by the Father's will, all things exist and were created. So the maintainer of creation. These are all things that only apply to the one God. And then we read that the Father, Son, and Spirit, these three titles that are applied to those who should only be talking about this way about themselves if they were God, then are distinct from one another, able to act independently from one another. The Spirit Mm -hmm. is not the Father nor the Son. The Son is not the Father nor the Spirit, and the Spirit and the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. Um, Note the order here. I'm doing this all on the back of my hand. But the point being made is this, when we recognize these four facts and ask, okay, so Isaiah 48, 16, how does God speaking say the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me? Uh, how is it that Jesus in John chapter 16 notes that he will send the Spirit with all things that the Father has, and that the Father has given all things to him without literally tripping over himself and his pronouns? And, say, and I don't mean that in the college way, by the way. <laughs> I mean, Literally, why doesn't he just say, I'm going to come back immediately after leaving you, and I will send me, and I shouldn't really be saying this. I'm not going anywhere. No, he says, I, the Son, am leaving, but you should rejoice in that because I will send another helper, the Spirit of Truth. This command, this authority, has been given to me by my Father, not by me. Now, you ask, okay, so there's this distinction between the Son, Father, and Spirit. How do you figure that out? We came up with a word for it. Trinity, but that's about as far as we can get. We recognize what's in Scripture, and we're content with it. But if you don't have reason to trust Scripture, or you outright deny Scripture, that's heresyville, and that's what we want to avoid. But if you're just in a place where you're going, you know, it's kind of complicated. It should be. We're dealing with God here. So that would be the point that we'd make, Jody, regarding your first question. Mm -hmm. But the the second is regarding, and I think is a good follow-through, what disqualifies someone from salvation, the the fake Jesus, the wrong Jesus. You don't have to understand everything about someone to love them. Adrian, you're married. You know this, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and just keep in mind some of the examples we see in Scripture where Christians, believers, people who are acknowledged to be believers yet had very limited understanding. You know, the first that comes to mind is a thief on the cross. Next to Jesus, here's a thief who simply acknowledged Jesus' claim of being the Son of God, God incarnate, which is what that meant. <clears throat> That's what their understanding is. Somehow this is the creator of the universe. He is divine. He is the promised one, the Messiah. And I just, I don't know, I don't understand what's going on other than the fact that, you know, you are the one. And, you know, I like that passage in John 1 uh, where it says that, um, yet to all who did receive him, to those who even believed in his name, uh, he gave the right to become children of God. So here you have this person who's hanging on a cross for a crime that he committed, you know, for crimes, simply believing in Jesus' name, acknowledging who he was, and Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so I don't think there's going to be an in-depth theology exam when we uh, for entrance. I think it's more of an attitude of faith in the heart, responding to what God did reveal and responding to what parts of that revelation that we actually receive. You know, some people don't get the whole Bible. Some people just have a gospel, and that's all they've ever had. And And they respond to the name of Christ and who He is just based on, 
you know, just excerpts of the Bible, and yet that's enough for salvation, just acknowledging that God is, through natural revelation, through creation, that, gosh, we couldn't possibly be here alone, that there is a, <clears throat> there is a creator. Uh, morality, human interaction, all these things in our hearts, God's law being written in our hearts, without even having revelation, still makes us guilty before God. So just knowing that there is a creator, that we are insufficient, guilty before him. This is why cultures all throughout time are constantly trying to sacrifice things with, you know, blood, because it's sort of intuitive in the human understanding that if there's a creator, we're wicked, and wickedness equals death. That means we kind of intuitively know that God is is holy and righteous, and no one can enter into his presence without uh, being perfect, and we can't be perfect. We're broken and flawed, and God revealed himself in the person of Christ, and incarnated as a human being, humbled himself by becoming a, a man, and then being executed on a cross, and then furnishing proof of his deity by coming back from the dead. Just acknowledging and, and humbly accepting those truths alone, I think, warrant salvation. And when a person says, gosh, I need salvation, I need a Savior, I cannot save myself, um, you may not understand what, how Jesus is divine, how the incarnation works, how the hypostatic union works of him being fully man and fully God, able to die, yet able to perform miracles and resurrect and able to talk to God at the same time. We may not understand or, as I said before, comprehend how those things work, but that they are true is what faith is about. It's not a blind faith in that I'm believing nonsense and have no idea or have any reasons for believing. It's the opposite. It says, I have good reasons for believing this is true, even if I don't fully understand all that how it works together um, as long as you're knowing not knowingly believing in like actual contradictions I love your you know series you've been doing on contradiction and rhetoric and so on and and so we're not making contradictory statements we're just describing an infinite being an infinite God in the most human terms that we have <laughs> yeah and we obviously haven't been told everything and what little we have is heavy enough but here's the point that's being made, Jody. When we're talking about the Trinity, we're recognizing truths we have reason to trust because of other proven truths elsewhere. We trust with reason. That's faith. So if I then take a step back and ask, well, what about growth then? Or if I believe something false, is that going to invalidate my salvation? Well, it depends, again, how ardently you hold to that falsehood. When I was in a single digits of age, I remember uh, asking my father, so do we believe in the the Father in Jesus and the Bible? Is that the Trinity? I thought the Holy Spirit was the Bible. And he says, no, no, the, the Holy Spirit isn't a book. He's a, he's a person. It's not, it's not this. It's the <laughs> one who gave us this. And I went, oh, okay. Now that, that's that line between heresy and between growth. We did a yeah. study Wednesday night uh, this week regarding, this is on July 20th, 2022, uh, the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned a lot of things about the Spirit. Him being the Bible and substance was not one of them. Mm -hmm. I've learned things since then. Keep learning, keep <laughs> growing, but all also note that the entire basis of your salvation is grace, not intellect. The salvation mm -hmm. is different from sanctification, a relationship with God that grows and develops. Now, what does that look like? Well, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. You'll want to understand these things more, to define mm. them and have an informed approach towards them biblically. There are some people who get off the rails, but always in secondary issues. Still call them brothers, but just kind of 
are cautious about the direction that those things head. If you believe in, you know, evolution versus creationism, that's different than someone who says the book of Genesis doesn't belong in your Bibles, and anyone who believes in a literal seven days of creation, well, that that's a heresy. They're not Christians. I'd hold a mirror up and say, I'm going to keep some distance, because that seems scary. If on the other hand, oh, uh, I'm, I'm more in the Reformed camp. I believe that God is sovereign and predestines everyone. Okay, I'm in the Armenian camp. I believe that man has free will. Okay, and anyone, notice the line, <laughs> who doesn't hold to my view is ultimately an altogether uh, apostate and cast out of the body of Christ. That's, yeah. that's where it gets scary. So make sure that when you believe something about Jesus, that that's supported from sources we can trust. That's the Jesus that can save you. A Jesus you understand everything about is just as fake as a Jesus mm-hmm. who you yeah. don't understand anything about. As so, far as the first part, though, you said mentioned that Carm, you went to the site, and it didn't help you. The only, there's only one little illustration that I've ever found even helpful, and I've we warned against this on Monday. Was it Monday? Yeah. <clears throat> that using any kind of earthly example of three and one is always a bad idea. So this is a bad idea, what I'm about to do, but I still think that... You know, there is a way in a, in, a, in a simple way of going, okay, I kind of get it, is if you take a hot pan and you throw an ice cube in it, it's it's all H2O, right? But all of a sudden, as the ice melts, you've got ice, you've got water, and steam. So you've got one substance being simultaneously represented in three different forms. Now, are you arguing that's the Trinity? No, no you're clarifying just, it's not hard to imagine three things, yet one thing. Right, so when we say essence, what God is, H2O, water, is just one essence. But in personhood, just like uh, water, H2O, can have three simultaneous. On that pan, that's there's cute. steam, water, and ice, all at the same time, three different modes, I guess you could say, which is not what we're saying is the Trinity, but you, That's can, heresy. <laughs> you can imagine how something like H2O can be three and one at the same time in, in two separate categories. Put that aside categorically, personhood, not the same as water, steam, or ice, but personhood is not the same as God's essence. So personhood is a separate category of describing God's Attributes. So, in essence, in, in uh, call it spirit or you know invisible, whatever whatever God is made of. Uh, we can't use physical language because He is not physical. He created physical reality, created time in the universe, matter and energy. So He exists outside those things. But we're so limited to our ability to use uh, functional and materialistic language, so even describing what God is, is difficult. So we use words like substance or spirit, which means like invisible but there, that kind of thing. And <clears throat> the, But separate from that as a category is personhood. And so we're accustomed to being one human and separately one person. So I'm one human being and one person. But God is one substantially, uh, one entity, one being, one God, but personhood, he has three. So we're not saying God is three and one substantially, and he's not one person and three persons. That would be a contradiction. We're just using the best we can, taking the biblical data as God has described himself as being, you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three eternal, co-equal persons, yet existing as one divine being. Yeah, so just 
keep those things in mind. Make sure that any information you take in on this is biblically based and informed. And when cults challenge you on it, know it well enough to be able to recognize a misrepresentation. You believe in three gods, says the Muslim. Well, I know the Quran says that, but what does the Bible actually say? Oh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Trinity was invented at the Council of Nicaea. Have you read the rudder of ecumenical councils? That is verifiably false. Mm -hmm. Well, you are teaching a false doctrine. Where is this false? We're recognizing something about God. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. Neither is the word Bible. That doesn't mean the Bible doesn't teach itself. We're asking for the truth statements Mm -hmm. behind the word. And on it goes. These are very bad objections to a very complicated doctrine. Mm -hmm. And if I say, your addition's wrong and we're doing calculus, that's a lot easier to handle than someone who says to themselves, am I sure I have all this right? You're not expected to. But as you grow in your love for God with all your mind in particular, that's what enables us to give a reason for the hope that is within us. You don't have to give the gospel and make sure that you have your doctrinal thesis ready for a triune God. All we need to clarify is God the Son, Mm -hmm. God the Spirit, and God the Father's roles in salvation. These things will be filled in along the way. That's why the baptism, when we talk about believer's baptism, someone coming to faith, they are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Jesus gave that great commission, he said, go therefore into all the nations and teach them what I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So you know, even in the Great Commission, what we as Christians call the Great Commission in Matthew 28 of Jesus commissioning his followers, his immediate disciples, and everyone who comes to faith in him to reach the whole world and then baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is kind of the the limit to what we can say or expect people to understand or apprehend in that regard. And as far as history, just want to point out, too, that a lot of times people do mistakenly think that the idea of the Trinity, the concept, was come come up with hundreds of years later. The, the early church always believed, but it took hundreds of years for theologians to articulate the Trinity in such a way so as not to espouse contradiction. So people, in a simplistic way, apprehended the Trinity, but when you have the early church, the early church of those several hundred years in the beginning, it took them that long to articulate it in such a way to, so as not to, to communicate contradictory statements about who Jesus is, who the Father is, who the Spirit is. And so when you have these councils, these are the gathering of thinking about these concepts for hundreds of years and then trying to articulate it in a way where you're not actually spouting off nonsense. And they did that successfully, but that shows us how much uh, respect we ought to have for those early years and for the doctrines that have been tried, tested, and and tested again and again and again and again uh, for the last 2,000 years. So it's not something that someone just kind of out of the blue came, I know, this is a cool idea. What What do we said that God was like a trinity, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's the fun thing about the truth, is you can't adjust it to make it simpler, and you also can't reduce it if it's too complicated. If, yeah. on the other hand, we were to ask ourselves, what kind of God would someone make up? Something more complicated than they can understand, or something so simple they could? Mm-hmm. This is, again, one of our proof texts. But um, you brought up something, and if there's anything more you want to note on this, this is actually mm-hmm. a fun one. We'll be waiting for your questions to come in. Uh, Feel free to do so through the comment sections of any of our views or our email address. We'll be keeping an eye on it. But I've run into people 
cultists, not Christians, who would fundamentally deny the Trinity and do so in such a way where it actually would invalidate their salvation. I do not call them brothers. They would make the emphasis and point. Well, you said to baptize in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But here in Acts chapter 2, Jesus tells them in verse 38, uh, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins. They'll uh, stop there, but they'll say, see, baptized in the name of Jesus. See, it's just Jesus. Not this Trinity stuff that you mm-hmm. came up with. How would we deal with that? Well, I would first point out that I would ask them what their view is of Scripture. Is Scripture inspired, meaning God-breathed, meaning God moved human beings to communicate what God wanted to communicate while, ta- while at the same time maintaining their individual uniquenesses of their language, their culture, and even the personal author's sort of personal points of view on things, so long as it wasn't going to interrupt what God wanted to communicate. So, you know, Paul's writings will look like Paul's writings. They won't look like just nobody, you know, the different texts of the Bible when it comes to different authors aren't identical in terms of style and emphasis and things like that. So there's a context, there's a human and historical context. And so I would find out what they think about that. And if they actually find scripture to be not only inspired, but inerrant, and if they start teetering on those things, like, well, not those translations. Usually when, they, when you run into these folks who make such statements, oftentimes they have their own Bible, whether it's been changed or they say that this one has been corrupted, the Bible that we have today, and we needed another revelation about Jesus. Um, and so, like, for example, Mormonism and Islam make that claim where they say, no, you don't really understand the real Jesus. The real Jesus was corrupted in the Bible. We needed the Quran Jesus to come along and kind of really clarify that uh, Jesus, you know, is, is not what Christians believe. So Muhammad, obviously, he, you know, plagiarized the New Testament. He plagiarized the stories about Jesus and then injected Mostly or heretical. If we assume that there was a Muhammad and that he actually wrote the Quran, but uh, it wasn't written by somebody else later. Assuming all those things are true, you can see that, that he took his own misunderstanding of the Trinity and adulterated it and then basically responded to a straw man. A straw man is when someone sets up a, a false image of, of, of a point of view, attacks the false image of it rather than the actual argument or the actual point of view. So going back to the baptismal formula then, yeah. how is the, uh, I guess, name of God being misrepresented here? So if they pass those tests, then I would say, well, do you, if, if, if they do believe the Scripture is inspired and inerrant, I would say, well, let's look at the whole of Scripture first. That's the simplest thing to do, is say, well, every instance where someone was baptized, how is it done? What kind of formulas? And does, does God's Word teach that a formula is the essence of salvation rather than the sort of simplistic attitude and faith of the heart. You know, Jesus said, like, the faith of a child. And so what are these uh, concepts? How are you dealing with those in this text? And are you ignoring the ones that do say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Are you denying the Trinity? Are you saying that we shouldn't just baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, even though Jesus commanded that? And Peter is just emphasizing 
you know, Jesus, because that's that's the emphasis, that's the Messiah. But he's uh, giving a message; he's not dictating the exact doctrine, because you can summarize for sake of time, and also speaking to new believers. But here's the point that's being made: if someone brings that challenge to you, you can again attack it from two angles. You can either clarify the person first, or you can even clarify Peter's statement in light of what they're accusing him of. Because note: is G- is Peter in the middle of baptizing someone, or is he explaining to them that the one who he's been talking about for the last chapter, is Jesus, Mm -hmm. and that is the relevant topic. He then goes on to say, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and they'll say, see, full stop, in Jesus only. Well, if I don't stop halfway through the verse, what else does it go on to say? You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Who made that call? Every member of the Trinity is represented within mm-hmm. two verses. Yeah. But note the point. You'd not only have to be biblically literate enough to recognize the call from the Father in Deuteronomy and Isaiah to know what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, given an understanding of mm-hmm. John and Matthew, but also, and even more importantly, knowing being baptized in Jesus' name, that was the information he gave. Does he actually baptize them in the name of Jesus only? We're never told. In the book of Acts, they're forming a conclusion on something that isn't in the text. Where does it say that they baptize them in the name of Jesus only? He says, be baptized in the name of Jesus only. Where does it show them baptizing people and saying this Mm -hmm. model you're setting up? We're talking about two different things, what Peter said and what Peter did. What Peter did, we're not told, because all that's recorded is Peter's sermon. What then should we conclude they did? Maybe what Jesus said. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And if you happen to be one of those unfortunate individuals who got baptized, and the pastor just said, in the name of Jesus and just forgot the rest, uh, I don't think your salvation is hindered because you know who you're believing in, and uh, I wouldn't worry about it too much. It's uh, As Peter said, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a clear conscience that saves you. So it's not a formula. That's why prayer is not something we recite. Um, unlike other Christian sects where prayer is really about reciting, even in... Uh, you know, when I, I remember, because I'm part, I was born in, my mom was born and raised in Nogales, Mexico, and so I grew up around Mexican culture. I grew up speaking Spanish as my first language, and I remember when I first met a, a Protestant Christian, and I was talking with him in Spanish, and I, I used the Spanish word for recite, because that was the only word I knew that meant prayer, and I said, yeah, and I said the word, and he goes, that's not prayer. That's to recite something. We don't do that. We talk to God. And I, I was dumbfounded because he was absolutely right, but I, it never even occurred to me that all those years that I was practicing my prayers, I was using an, the word for recite. And so we, it, that's just a small, exa- a small earthly example of what we're talking about, how, how it's easy for human beings to formulate and create uh, nitpicking words and saying, oh, well, see, it just said, like I had one time, as an, another quick example, someone said, well, any, you know, it says that uh, anything we ask in his name, and we, it'll be done for us. And so I asked the guy, I go, anything at all? And, and he was uh, part of a, a I, I would say, cultic skew of Christianity called the Word of Faith movement. And he was one of those individuals that believed that faith was not 
a dynamic of belief between you and the Creator, or in the Creator, having faith and trust in the Creator, but rather a, a power, and that words were the containers of this power, and if you speak, anything you speak, if you just believe what you're saying is true, you can bring that into reality. And so if I speak anything and ask Jesus, it'll come to reality. And I said, well, what if you ask God for like a second wife? Because I was sitting there with him and his wife at the dinner table, and and he goes, I could have another wife. And I just thought, okay, this is uh, pretty bizarre. You've you've taken and nitpicked one little passage where Jesus asked anything in my name, and it'll be done for you. And you've completely distorted it and ignored all the context of the entire Bible, the context of the book, and the context of the immediate passage. And so that's what Sean's emphasizing here, is that when we hear arguments that seem to throw us off, well, it's see, in Jesus' name. Remember, that's not how the Bible works. We don't take and nitpick little words and go, oh, well, see, it says it there without reading everything in its in its context. It's grammatical context. It's uh, linguistic and cultural context. There's so much more to interpreting anytime someone's talking to you from 2,000 years ago. You have to take those into consideration, make sure you're understanding what they're actually trying to say. And you don't even need an English major to get all that down. You can yeah. say, have read the New Testament in order, and by the time you get to Acts, you can go, oh yeah, Jesus told them to do that, and then they say, no, that, Acts, that. Acts 19, I just thought of that. They, they, had, they were believers. They, I think... Apollos had come across them, and maybe, I don't know if Paul was there. Yeah, maybe Paul was there, but um, they asked them if they had been ba- if they had received the Holy Spirit. And they said, oh, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And he yeah, goes, well, into more. whose baptism were you baptized? They're like, well, we received John's baptism, which was the baptism of repentance. And then I think it goes on to say, well, then they baptized them in the name of Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues, and, you know, as a as a confirmation to to the people around them that they had received the Holy Spirit, in fact. Yep. <clears throat> How would you respond to that one? Because there's, there's an example of someone being baptized in the name of Jesus. It was a summation of what they did. <laughs> it wasn't a quotation of what they were doing. It's the same issue. It's saying that it describes what happened. See, that's what was said. No, it describes what happened. If I yeah. said I left the room, it's not going to clarify which door. It's not going to clarify the conversations we had along the way. And it's, of course, not going to include my dark monologues of how treacherous a journey I'm going to have when I went home. Mm. It's just going to mention the hallway. Yeah. Make sure that you don't read into the narrative quotations. That's why he gets actions. paid the big bucks. <laughs> Question that, too. But intent in all things. So, Monica... Yeah, Monica uh, gives a citation from 1 John chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, and I think this brings up another good question. Again, bring your questions to us. We don't want to have to dissect your comments to find them. Uh, it says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree as one. Uh, that's a fun passage when it comes to textual critics, because when they examine the way the Bible's been copied throughout the ages, the way that we examine our Bibles today, and that we know they haven't been changed in doctrine or all this other nonsense, is because we can compare them to how they were copied in the earliest days we can examine Mm -hmm. and see a trend throughout history. Of all the problem passages, the questionable passages, we've gone over this Mm -hmm. before, the the Texas Receptus, the people who put together the New King James translation, the guys who put that together, they said, if we were to, you know, call into question a 
passages that may have not have been in the originals, we can maybe put together one half of one page of text. Now notice, that's not certain, that's questionable passages. The reason why they have questions is because they either aren't in the earlier versions, we don't have evidence of them being in earlier versions, it's not like there's just a missing portion, it's like we are assembling these from scraps and it wasn't in that copy, or damage has blurred out other verses and they say, we don't really know for certain what's there, we have to go off what we have, not what we don't. But the point being made is, one half of one page of text in a uh, very large book, Mm. and if we were to be cautious and remove all of those verses, no doctrine of Christianity would change. Is that Monica's point? Is she asking about differences in translations? She and... quotes the verse, but I want to be a one step ahead and make gotcha. sure that they're, uh, we're edifying our people here. But um, verse 8 is one of those one-half-of-page text of questions. Another one is John 5-4, I believe, where it notes an explanation of the angel coming down to stir Mm -hmm. the water. It just explains the tradition. It doesn't mean that's what was actually happening. The point of emphasis was irrelevant, whether that verse was a verse Mm -hmm. or a commentator's footnote. I personally believe it was in the original, but even if I grant their point, it doesn't change the text. Yeah, and that's the important key when you're dealing with how the Bible arrived to us today, well, obviously we know that it was copied by hand, and hundreds of thousands of times, and we have tens of thousands of copies today in different languages, about 5,000 or so in the original language. Six now. And we can compare these texts, and we can compare it to the oldest ones, based the only way they can date them usually is by looking at their handwriting style, and they can kind of make an estimate about, okay, this this type of paper, this handwriting style, most likely dates to this date roughly, and then and go from there. And then so we have all these 26,000 manuscripts from the original date of writing to the printing press where hand copying could bring in mistakes. And out of the 20,000 lines in the New Testament, only about 40 are really in any kind of question as to, well, I'm not quite sure if it was a a thee or a thou, and, and and sometimes there's whole sections where some scholars, not all, but will just question whether the text was in the original or not, um, but they have no bearing on any fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. And this is why we're informing you about this. Verse 8 is one of those questionable passages because mm-hmm. it only appears <clears throat> late, and the evidence that we have are from kind of sketchy manuscripts. Now note, the substance of it doesn't affirm or deny the Trinity. We don't base it all on this. If we're mm-hmm. cautious and we remove it, Trinity doesn't change. Right, I, yeah. I prefer not to speak of it, and this is why we're bringing it up. If you know in advance that someone's got a trap set for you, or they're really prepared in one Mm. direction, what's the smart thing to do? Go around another direction. Atheists, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, skeptics, if you quote to them John 5 or 1 John 5 8 or John 1 1 or you know name your passage that they've been drilled basically on a day-to-day basis in order to address be aware of that and find other passages, because if you just cite back to them what they've been already trained to know, this is how I know you're wrong, when in reality, if you were talking to a more objective opponent, they could just say, well, here's some questions, but ultimately, let's just get back on topic. No, they'll, they'll hammer this home to death. If you're going to quote 1 John chapter 5 and verse 8, the first thing you do is look up the research of Dan Wallace. He's a guy who literally is like a modern-day Indiana Jones. He'll go <laughs> to the places, he yeah. handles the manuscripts, <clears throat> he's working right now on making photocopies, like 
HDTV level. Yeah, they're the traveling Greek. the globe. They're a really neat organization. It's nonprofit. They're going throughout the globe and finding every existing manuscript and then high, high, high quality, putting them in digital form. Yeah. Uh, manu- some manuscripts that have never really, uh, some of them haven't even been revealed to the public. I mean, be, uh, scholars have examined them, but there is no known image that anyone can study now. Uh, students, scholars all across the world can study all these manuscripts at the comfort of their computer in high resolution. It's pretty, pretty phenomenal. You don't have to and worry about They're trying about to do it before any of these manuscripts, you know, deteriorate. Because over time, even in the best conditions, and some of them are not in really good conditions. I've I've met Dan and sat in uh, some really cool lectures about what they're doing, and even took apart some. We were tasked with breaking apart these Egyptian masks to see if we can, you know, break apart. Because what they would do when they would make these Egyptian masks is they would go to the trash heap, pick up all this papyra, and then just glue it together. Papyra is one of their forms of ancient paper. Basically, they'd uh, put all these reeds, flatten them out, soak them in lime for some sort of preservation. Mm-hmm. They'd write on it. Yeah, they'd basically write on, you know, homemade paper. And that stuff didn't last very long. But in certain conditions, in certain environments, they'd be put in pots like the, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls were just in an ideal location with very, very low humidity and just preserved well. But most of the time, uh, they didn't preserve very well. But the ones that we do have are copies of copies, not even originals, not even copies of originals as far as we know. But, um, you know, they deteriorate over time and, and them so we, I'm actually uh, listed as one of the discoverers of an old fragment of Galatians chapter 4 because of that project that we were on. It was just sitting there with these scholars taking apart these pieces, and they would soak them in a special solution so it would remove the layers of the mask without taking away the writing. And sometimes these, because papyri wasn't cheap, so they would someone would take a piece, and if they didn't want to use it, they would try to just write over it. So we would find pieces where they would have, like, you know, some Greek story and the Bible on top of it because Christians were poor, so they would go and get used papyrus, clean it off as best they could, and then write down copies of what they were transmitting to each other. Fancy word is a palimpsest. Yeah, so they we found a little fragment of Galatians 4. It was kind of a neat, neat little experience. But going back to the First John 5... 1 John 5, 8 passage. Remember that that is something that atheists have basically hammered to death and saying you can't trust any of the Bible because this one has somewhat sketchy evidence in its support, and an objective person wouldn't really consider it that big a deal. But we're going to emphasize it to the town hall and back, basically. Make sure that you avoid unnecessary segues and conversations in an a topic that already requires divine intervention to accomplish anything in. If you're talking to someone about the Trinity, the best place to start, and this is just speaking from my experience, is the Old Testament, because they've been trained. This is true of Jehovah's Witnesses, true of Muslims, true of Mormons. This is a New Testament invention. This is something that was foisted upon the church when those, uh, you know, Da Vinci Code conspiracy theorists put everything together. You can go, well, why does the Bible speak about Yahweh calling down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh? Why does the angel of the Lord speak to himself as if he's the Lord and then tells Moses and uh, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the others to come up to the Lord? 
why does it use these languages as if God is speaking and then tells them to go to God? Are, are we polytheists here? And you can, again, go into the Jewish traditions of the Metatron and all that, but it's ultimately just a mm-hmm. delaying tactic. Why? Uh, Metatron, for those of you who don't know, that's the angel of the Lord in fancy Kabbalah language. <laughs> but the point being made is this. If someone has a, not corner, but a pre-prepared lecture in store for you, if you go this tr- you're on a date, you mentioned Star Wars, what's going to happen with us? We're going to go off, right? Mm. If on the other hand, you're just going to say, how is church today? Hard It'll be a, first. <laughs> it'll be a shorter conversation. Avoid this, because you don't. You already are in a difficult situation where the mm-hmm. Spirit can use yeah. you, and if you're going to be drained of <clears throat> patience or overwhelmed with information, 1 John 5, 8 is a death trap when it comes yeah. to those things. And keep in mind that most good study Bibles... Uh, most translations have footnotes. Like, for example, I just thought I'd look up the Holman real quick. And it has, it says the text, it says, uh, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three, these three are in agreement. But if you look at the footnote, it says other manuscripts, the Vulgate, and a few, I think that's what Fiji stands for, and a few late Greek manuscripts read, testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And it doesn't go on from And there. there are three who bear witness on earth. And so there's an, you know, it tells you in the footnotes oftentimes when there is a, a disagreement between a stack of older manuscripts versus another stack of manuscripts that are from a different place and different time, different region, and whether or not which one should we adopt, that they don't really make those decisions. They just kind of leave it in the notes. They Some manuscripts say this. Uh, we're not sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's their job. They don't come to conclusions. They just go off what they have. And our job is to distill that accurately for you. I'm personally of the opinion that if either way you go, it doesn't make any difference, then there's no reason to question it. But if, on the other hand, people want to be sure, no, this was this was in the Bible, or people aren't sure this mm-hmm. is in the Bible, they're usually better safe than sorry, and this is the assumption they make. Mm-hmm. Then that's over-exasperated and say, your own Bible teachers deny this is in the yeah. Bible. No, they don't. They just say there's questions. But mm-hmm. here's the point that's being made. Monica, if you're ever talking to someone about the Trinity and this passage comes up, there are better ways of going about it. Start in the Old Testament, make sure that those are verified and interpreted through the New, but in evangelism, be very careful with that passage. It's it's almost as productive as talking to someone who likes the Star Wars sequel trilogy, if you want to <laughs> continue on with that side illustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, that point being made, um, seems like you guys are... Uh, divinely inspired here, no questions today. So we'll go to some of the ones we've had written down previously. Um, This one was asked anonymously, but is the child in Revelation 12 the church? Well, let's go to the passage. Uh, If you go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it reads, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland, a tiara of twelve stars. Then being uh, with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth birth. The dragons introduced, we'll explain that if you guys ask, and it says in verse 5, the child that was to be born was a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So note the descriptions that were given, first of the woman and then of the child, and you'll notice a trend on how to handle this passage. First, when it comes to any prophetic section of Scripture, these things are loaded. I I mean, we're talking Chipotle burrito loaded with 
allusions, with quotations, with comparisons to previous text. If you read the book of Isaiah and you haven't read Genesis through Esther, you're going to miss some things because it assumes that you've read a lot. Now, when Isaiah would make these callbacks, it was understood to set the tone of the conversation. This is what I'm meaning. If you're shown a vision, well, obviously the symbols are going to be significant. You can look at, say, for example, uh, Joseph's uh, interpretation of the vision of Pharaoh. You can look at Daniel interpretations of the visions of Nebuchadnezzar. All these things were new to him and therefore given to them by God. But if we believe that this is by God, this is given to us from God, we can use that also to give the interpretation. How has it been explained before? Obviously, this is a vision because the literal first four words are now a great sign. Okay, so this is something symbolic. This is meant to point us, a sign, right, to either let us know you're here or you're going to be here. It's giving direction. A woman, well, why will that be important? Maybe because she's preggers. I know there's uh, questions in academia on that today, but they're usually the only ones that give birth to babies. There are people who say, no, it's the Virgin Mary. Okay, whatever, it's a woman. But she's clothed with the sun, the moon's under her feet, and she has a tiara of 12 stars. Where has that appeared before? I go back to Genesis. It was also in the context of a vision, and what were those in representation of? Jacob gave the interpretation when Joseph said, the 11 stars bowed down to me along with the sun and moon. Jacob said, are your mother and I and your brothers going to bow down to you? Mm -hmm. He interpreted it. So we continue on with who is the audience, the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, Jacob, and his wife, whether that's Rachel or Leah, it's not, or Rebecca, That was his grandma. Whether it was Leah or Rachel, that's irrelevant. The point then being made is this, the mother and father of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what's represented by this woman based on the common illustration. Now, continuing with that interpretation method. Israel. Yeah, so continuing with that interpretation method, now we go to the child. What are we told about him? He's a boy. Okay, how, how much can we conclude from that? Not much. There are lots of boys and symbols. But it says, who would rule all nations with a rod of iron. And then he was caught up to God in his throne. The rod of iron, where do we hear that before? Well, you go to, I know it's a leap from Revelation, <laughs> but Psalm 2, Psalm 2, where there is a, and this is true of the Jews even today, they recognize as a messianic psalm. Now, messianic, what does that mean? It means it's a picture or a even a prediction about something about the coming Messiah. And so Messiah, Messiah, anointed one in yeah. Greek, the Christ, right? Mm-hmm. It says this in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, in Hebrew, Mashiach, in Greek, Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. So again, the nations are rebelling against God's authority, and he's like, how cute. (laughs) Now note in verse 6, yet, remember who's speaking, I have set my king on the holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, God, you are my son, today I have begotten of you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. People reading the book of Hebrews note this quote, but here's the one for Revelation 12. The ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them, who? The nations, with a rod of iron... 
you shall dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. Mm -hmm. Then goes on to note, so be on his good side, because it's going to get messy otherwise. But the point being made is this. God speaking says to his son, whom he's begotten, what? I will give you the nations. You'll dash them to pieces like a rod, or with a rod of iron. Mm. Messianic psalm. Who is the child? It's not the church. The only symbol description that we're given, both in and outside of Revelation, you can go to Ephesians 4, or you can go to Revelation 19. The church is always described as the bride of Christ. So following the traditional understanding, again, of that term, brides are usually the girl, who's the male child? With the quotation from Psalm 2 and verse 8, it's Jesus. Who's the one that Israel produced that brought mm-hmm. into this world that <clears throat> Satan was trying to oppose mm-hmm. in the beginning? It was Jesus. That yeah. who was the so child. So the woman represents literally the nation of Israel, bringing forth the the promised Messiah. All right. Um, let us know to the anonymous questioner yeah. if that was helpful, and as well those of you who are listening. I'll again keep uh, visiting for questions, but you guys seem to be solid today. Here's a question from Yari, who wants to know: All religions eventually come together? Question mark. Statue of Liberty, Starbucks woman. Is this the no? No, the Starbucks woman doesn't have anything to do with the Statue of Liberty. It was a mermaid. But that being said. Um, are all religions eventually going to come together? Make sure that the questions are about the Bible, Yari. We'll be happy to address them. But as but, far as... <clears throat> that's a, a common misunderstanding, though, that people have about world religions, is that they assume... And I'm speaking... I'm not saying that the question has anything, but there is a related idea that I think is important. We People assume that all religions are you know, fundamentally the same, but just different on the outside, superficially different. Yeah, they're all the same except on matters of God and the devil and heaven and hell and morality and our origin and our purpose in life and our <laughs> destiny and yeah. where we get that information when it, from. When it comes to that. all the fundamental life questions, you know, where did we come from? Who are we? Where are we going? What does life from here, this life, what does the next life bring about? They all fundamentally and 100% disagree and contradict one another. So religions might be superficially the same, but fundamentally they contradict one another. And as uh, Sean and Peter pointed out during many of their contradiction series, you you can't have two things stating the same thing at the same time and eliciting two opposite answers. So when you have world religions that fundamentally disagree, they can't come together. It's impossible. It's like trying to fit a square into a round hole, a square peg into a round hole. It, they fundamentally disagree. Some say God does not exist. Some religions say God does exist. Some religions say that God is just one of many, many gods, a pantheon of gods. And some say, no, this is the... And, and here's the real issue, is that every way says they're the only way. And they can't all be right. So you can say all religions are wrong, but you cannot say that they are all some way getting to the same place, or we're all going to just come together once we throw off those unimportant, secondary, outward, superficial ideas. No, it's the opposite is true. They fundamentally disagree. You know, they're completely on the opposite spectrum of what they claim to be, and at the same time telling everybody all the other guys are wrong. They're all doing the same thing. So... Uh, no, religions can't come together. They uh, are diametrically opposed to one another on a very, very fundamental level. They can be replaced, but they can't unite. 
So yeah, remember right. that they won't come together. They can be replaced with a new lie, but understand that it doesn't dodge the I issue. I mean, unless you decide to just throw truth out the window and say, we don't care what they believe. We're going to try to force ourselves to just kind of get along and come together. We all believe in, we all have belief. And now you're not worshiping a faith. You're just worshiping the word faith. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no Deepak Chopra's among uh, <laughs> rational groups. Um, all right. So speaking of which, we'll finish with this uh, contradiction. I think this will be the simplest to approach. The <laughs> contradiction of the day will be, does the Bible say to honor parents or to dishonor them? In, oh boy, in Exodus 20 and verse 12, it says, honor your father and mother. But according to the summary that is provided for us, copied and paste from atheist.com, it says in Luke 9 and verse 59, through 62, it says not to honor your parents. Now, is that even a quotation? Secondly, is that even an appropriate conclusion? And thirdly, what was this guy smoking? So while you're turning to the passage to just read it, remember the three steps in dealing with the contradiction. First, know what a contradiction is. The second law, formal law of logic, is the law of non-contradiction. A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. If Luke chapter 9 would say that this is in fact a dismissal, of the commandment, honor your father and mother, we'd have a problem. But this is where the second comes in. Call their bluff. If they say the Bible contradicts each other, give them an example. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, what does Luke chapter 9, verse 59 actually say? Uh, which part? Luke 9, 59 through 62. I can just read it. <clears throat> so starting in verse 59, uh, well, there's a little, let me go a little ahead there to 57. So as they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens, birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And then what happens? Another man says, I'll follow you. And he says, let me first go and bury my father and mother. Jesus right, says, let yep. the dead bury their own dead. You mm -hmm. come and follow me. Yep. Now, is there anything in that past that says dishonor your father and mother? No. If you understand a little bit of the context, it was noting he's going to wait till his father's funeral. It's not a contradiction. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.